On today's episode, we have a big father-son selection make their debut. St Kilda's season is derailed by injury and some unfortunate player actions. One of our favourites is back at South Melbourne. Footscray in their up gear get the win they have been craving for so long. Fitzroy managed to avoid an embarrassing scoreline. And on top of that, there are some unfortunate off-field incidents that affect several different teams. All this and more coming up after our song. It's the history of football we knows about And we want to expand what we know We'll become such intelligent gentry With every kick-to-kick show Beginning in the time 1870s Right through to the modern day Tune in for Timmy Coops and the Kazman To hear what they all have to say Welcome to the Kick to Kick podcast, the Australian Rules Football History podcast that takes a deep dive into the history of the league. We have no real qualifications to bring you this show other than a thirst for knowledge, a desire to relive the past, and lots of books. My name is Tim. Then I have Kazman over here. Hi, everybody. I know you wanted the I'm first introduction. That's what you were, you were giving me the come here come to, to me. Fingers. <laughs> yeah. Very um, distractingly. Moz, welcome back to the studio. Thank you so much. It's good okay. to be here. Yeah, good to have you back. <laughs> and Charlie, you know, I suppose it's good to have I'm you. I'm here well. too, guys. <laughs> um, I'm, impor- I'm important. Yeah, so we're here to talk about the 1953 season. Almost halfway through the 50s, kind of. Um, <laughs> firstly, I'd like to say hello to listeners in Germany, Sweden, India, the and the American state of Hawaii. Ah, mm. Guten Tag and Aloha. Aloha. Mm. Um, and just noticing we haven't had many listeners from the Northern Territory for a while as well. So ah. if you're in the Territory, Charlie, I know you've got links there. Maybe you can just give us some promotion. Yeah, give some people a kick. A little yeah. nudgy. Yeah, absolutely, a little poke. Mm. Um, so Charlie, you probably want to, you know, you probably want to tell us what kind of year it was. Uh, you'd be surprised to know. <laughs> 53 was a great year. <laughs> we loved it. Give us some history. Now, you're going to love the uh, the song I chose for 53. Okay, bring it on. The song is Oh Happy Day oh, by Lawrence Welk and the Four Nights. Was, uh, was it number one in Australia for one week? How do you spell Welk? W-E-L-K. Love it. Love it. Um, so I assume some events happened as well. Some, things, with you. some things did happen. Yeah. Um, I feel like this has become a pattern. Where I'm like, it's a great year. And then the first thing is either a death or something really bad. Yeah. It's become a You're weird a pattern that I'm in. So, anyway, it was a great year. US President Harris Truman announced that the US had developed the hydrogen bomb. Yeah. Yeah. Great. That's what we all like. Uh, anyway, yeah. that's a good one. <laughs> Important one. On the 19th of January, we had 71% of all television sets in the United States were tuned in to watch what show? I Love Lucy. Wow. To watch Lucy give birth to little Ricky. This is more people than those who tuned in to uh, watch Dwight Eisenhower's inauguration the next day. And the record in terms of percentage of people is still yet to be broken. Massive. On the 20th of January, Dwight D. Eisenhower was sworn in as the 34th President of the United States. No one watched. Mm. They're all thinking about little Ricky. Um... (laughs) On the 5th of February, uh, Walt Disney's feature film Peter Pan premiered for the very first time. Premiered for the first time. Yeah. Great. Well done, Charlie. <laughs> 
On the 1st of March, Joseph Stalin suffered a stroke. It paralysed him and rendered him unconscious until his death on the 5th of March. So on the 5th of March... Stalin died! Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, on the 19th of March, the 25th Academy Awards were held. This was the first Academy Awards that was broadcast on television. Uh, does anyone know which movie won Best Picture that year? No. I don't know when Goldwyn won. Peter Pan? No. That would have been, that would have been great. Uh, no. It was Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth, which is now widely thought to be perhaps the worst best picture winner in history. <laughs> um, on the 20th of March in Australia, the Television Act was passed by Parliament, which set the regulations for the broadcast of television in Australia, although it didn't commence until 1956. So we were ahead of the game there. Yeah. On the 26th of March, uh, Jonas Salk announced his polio vaccine to the world. Uh, on the 10th of April, the Melbourne Knights FC Club was founded as Croatia SC in Melbourne, Australia. Interesting. Yeah. I've also got some uh, soccer league news as well. Oh, to, great. To talk about later. On the 13th of uh, April, Ian Fleming published the very first James Bond novel, Casino Royale. Yes. On the 29th of May, uh, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay from Nepal became the first men to reach the summit of Mount Everest. Who got up there first? Norgay. No one ever said. Oh. They never oh. said who it was. There you go. Neither it of them. They kept Sturm. Yeah, <laughs> surely. Yeah. He would have run up. <laughs> On the 2nd of June, uh, Elizabeth II was crowned Queen of the United Kingdom. On the 27th of July, we had the Korean War ending with the Korean armistice. So yeah, that's so, the... So MASH, the end of MASH. That's they it. go home. Mm. Well, yeah. Although MASH kept going for a few more years after the end of the war, I think. No, it didn't. In the last episode, they were, like the war was over, they went home. No, as in the show yes. went for longer than oh, the war. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Famously. Yeah. Uh, and that was when they divided the... Is it the 29th parallel? Something like that, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And that created the beginning of North Korea and South Korea. On the 12th of September, US Senator John Fitzgerald Kennedy married Jacqueline Lee Bouvier at St. Mary's Church in Newport, Rhode Island. Bouvier. Yeah. Jackie O. Hey, Jackie O. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, later on, in the beginning of November, end of September, we had My Hero winning the Caulfield Cup, Hydrogen winning the Cox Plate. Hydrogen, and the same year the H bomb was. <laughs> yeah. Clever. And Wadala winning the Melbourne Cup. And at some point in December, Hugh Hefner published the very first issue of Playboy magazine. Whoa, baby. Featuring a centrefold nude photograph of Marilyn Monroe. It sold almost 55,000 copies at 50 cents each. <laughs> there you go. And on, uh, I guess, December 31st, uh, Solveig IV uh, took line honours and Ripple won on handicap in the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. So there we go. There are the events of 53. Nice. They were great. Television... Marilyn Monroe naked, hydrogen bomb. Good year? Yeah, yeah. Great year. Um, now, Take it. I know people were born in 52. Were they also born in 53? Some were. Good. <laughs> Just a few. Yeah. Just some. Most of them were born in 52. Okay. No. Yeah. <laughs> no, I've, I've tried to, as time's gone on, more and more people that we know of are now being born, funnily okay. enough. I'd almost just like a, a top 10. Like yeah, well, Charlie's top 10. I'm trying to, well, I'm trying to stay with the Australian theme here. Okay. Okay, so we've got on the 16th of April, Peter Garrett was born. On the 6th of May, not Australian, but Tony Blair, the Prime Minister yeah. of the UK. On the 24th of June, 
the great man Michael Tuck. Tucky. Tucky mm. was born. On the 1st of July, we have David Gulpilil, the uh, traditional dancer and, and actor. On the 27th of July, Yahoo Sirius, one of the great filmmakers. Is he still alive? I don't know. Oh, I, I think so. so. I'm Do not you sure. Do know who Yahoo Sirius is? No, I don't. Well, Young, Einstein. Young Einstein. Or Reckless oh, Kelly. Reckless Kelly. Yeah, mm. classic. <laughs> On the 17th of August, we've got Noni Hazelhurst. Oh, yeah. Who ra- basically raised us all, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Play school of fame? No? Yeah. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I need to up the Yeah, me. come on. Having a quick Google. Yeah. And on the 11th of September, we had Renee Geyer. Yeah. So I'm staying with the Australian. No, that's no, Helen, still like... Helen Reddy, I'm thinking of. Yeah. yeah. So they're, they're staying with the Australian theme, theme there. There was a great, uh, I can't remember what day it was, and I wanted to do it for you, Timmy, but there was a great uh, American professional wrestler by the name of Steamboat Ricky, oh, I think yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, yeah, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. Cool. That, and that's it. That's, everyone that's who was born. born. That, those are all the people that <laughs> were born <yeah>. in 53. <laughs> <laughs> all right, then let's get to some league news. Yes. Because it's football season, and that's the reason it's the time of the year that we love. Um, now, because Anzac Day fell on a Saturday this year, yeah. there was a fortnight between round one and two. So on the evening of Friday the 24th, um, Anzac Day Eve, if you will, mm-hmm. um, Fitzroy and Collingwood played in a exhibition match at the Royal Showgrounds in the benefit of St. Vincent Hospital. Uh, Collingwood winning that match 67-43 to 43 before a crowd of 22,000. So this is the first Anzac Eve game? No. Hmm? Well, like, as, as in the night time before? Yes. I suppose, yes. yes. But we do know that Richmond and Melbourne played on the day before Anzac, the actual yes. Anzac Day. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, and this was one of the very first night matches. So, I mean, after the last year's Brisbane exhibition where Melbourne, sorry, where Geelong and Essendon played, like, we're, we're seeing a few night matches now and the possibility of that coming forward. Um, now, rights to football radio broadcasting were also in dispute. The VFL insisting that stations which broadcast a full game be given preference over horse racing stations. Really? Ground managers who control rights wanted to, the additional revenue from secondary broadcasting rights money and was divided 50-50 between ground manager and the home team. So okay. teams are making money as well. And we're talking broadcasting rights. Yeah, and look, the 50s <laughs> is big for broadcasting. Like, we're, we're very close to... The age we, of TV. As we just yeah. said, 56 yeah. television. Yeah, so it's, it's coming. And we're all into cool. the sports. Which, yeah, I mean, it's going to open up a whole new line of audio and stuff for us as a podcast as oh, well. Oh, isn't it going to be great? Oh, yeah. be mm. It's going to be almost too much. Yeah, I'm off. I'm done. Um, June 3rd, the VFL banned trainers from taking messages from the coach to the players on the ground. Uh, of which Checker Hughes was very critical in the media. Interesting. Yep. Uh, by round eight, the top four was locked in. The teams teams changed order, but the team the, the teams in the top four didn't change after round eight. Yeah. Okay. But so we're saying locked in. That was who they were. But at that yep. stage, it wasn't like oh well, no one else can make no, it. No, no, no. It was just but it just had happened. Change. Yeah, yeah, just, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, before the season, Melbourne and Richmond had joined forces to veto a move to allow Carlton to play at the MCG while Princess Park was being prepared for the Olympics. Yeah, no. Melbourne objecting that it was impractical for two clubs to use the one ground for training, um, but left the door open for clubs playing matches there. Um, the proposal didn't come to fruition anyway, so it didn't matter. But which is funny considering that. The MCG was used for the Olympics as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Um, and the 12th uh, National Carnival was held in Adelaide with teams from South Australia, Western Australia, Tasmania, the VFL and the VFA competing. In the year, two years earlier, 1951, the VFA actually had to play the amateurs in a qualifying game to be eligible to, get into the, to play yeah. in the carnival. Um, but look, as we know, the VFL ultimately won. 
uh, crushing South Australia by 99 points in the deciding game. <laughs> uh, so arrogant. Yeah. <laughs> we have a, another Lightning Premiership in 53 as well. Uh, this one, the grand final being contested between St Kilda and Richmond. <laughs> Richmond taking out the grand final 23-9. to 9. What was this one raising money for anything in particular? No, just, did we know just, they're just enjoying a lightning carnival now. Yeah, it's just a, an annual thing they've introduced yeah. to you know give some of the the teams who don't get success you know an excuse to get some silver. Yeah. I suppose. Uh, and I've got some uh, some Dacos news. Oh yep. yep. Oh great. Uh, so Stanley Dacos, mm-hmm. we know he's in Australia now. Uh, he goes to see the South Melbourne Hallis play with his brother, purely because there was nothing else to do that Saturday afternoon. Um, now we know the Hallis were playing in South Melbourne as well. Um, and what, so one day Stanley went to this game and he could hear the crowd at the Lakeside Oval, the football game. So he left the soccer at halftime to see what the fuss was about. Um, he thought football with the marking handball and high rate of scoring and vigour was far more interesting as a spectacle than soccer. And he became an avid South Melbourne supporter. There uh, you go. <laughs> Stanley Dacos. The Lakeside Cup has brought us one very <laughs> One of the greats. <laughs> yeah. Wowzers. Yeah. Okay. So because of this, Peter Dacos will grow up a South Melbourne fan as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let us travel up the ladder, Moz and Kaz, um, from bottom to top as we do. All right. On the bottom, we have Hawthorne, who won three games. They lost 15 games, and they had a percentage of 68.5. Another great year for the Mayblues <laughs> down the bottom there. So coached by uh, Jack Hale this year, their captain and best and fairest winner was Ted Fletcher, and their lead goal kicker was Kevin Coughlin with 19. Um, so some debutants, Kazman, we've got uh, John McCashney and Wally Nash. Um, now, John Kennedy, who's won the last three best and fairest, I believe, Charlie. <laughs> yes. John Kennedy. John, Ken- uh, John Kennedy, yeah. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Yep. Um, he has been appointed vice-captain. Yep. Fantastic. Um, it would take till round six for their first win of the season, coming after five disappointing losses. And that came from nowhere against the fifth-place Carlton at Glenferry. Uh, the Hawks kept the Blues scoreless in the last quarter to win by 20 points. Their next win was achieved over a lowly Melbourne at the MCG. <laughs> in this round 10 game, the Hawks kicked easily their highest score for the season of 16-602. Um, and they were also the inaugural winner of the TM Ferguson Memorial Trophy, which was a another trophy to have between two teams competing. <laughs> Just so, another one. Yeah. Um, TM Ferguson was a former Hawthorne captain from 1905 and six, so one of their very first oh, captains, yeah. and also worked as a statistician at Melbourne. Okay. So they had this um, this trophy, and they had a, a um, medallion that each the a player from each team got, got for the, the whole team. Like, oh, the whole team oh, wow. got it. Yeah, because you can buy. I saw some for sale on like some auction sites. <laughs> because yeah, okay, fair enough. Yep. Did, uh, you, got, did you buy it? No, I couldn't oh. get the price. No, I, it was Brian Wilson's from like 1959. I think it was a bit too expensive. <laughs> uh, four more losses in succession followed. In uh, all of them, Hawthorne was overrun in the last quarter. Uh, in in round twelve. Uh, the Hawks were playing the still undefeated Geelong side at Glen Ferry. The home side gave it their all and they were leading by three points at the last change, uh, but it got run over again in the last quarter to lose by four goals. It was during this stretch of losses that uh, Hector Lacey in the Sporting Globe suggested that the league would be sensible to close Hawthorne down and bring in a club from another area. <laughs> DeLacy cited Hawthorne's financial difficulties. He also attacked Glen Ferry Oval as a substandard 
uh, Oat venue and accused Hawthorne of having a lily white approach to their football and derided their lack of any finals action in their 28 year history. Wow. I mean, that is harsh, but all of it's true. Yeah, no, but for some reason we got stuck with them. And Didn't we? And now look at them. But there was a bit of conjecture about, about Glenn Furry as a. As a the, the sardine can. Yeah. yeah. They're tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Hawks won a close game in round 15 against South Melbourne at Lakeside Oval by eight points uh, in a match that was close all day. Their win lifted the team off the bottom of the ladder, but they were back there by season's end, <laughs> losing their last three games to Collingwood, Carlton and Fitzroy. At the end of the disappointing season, coach Jack Hale declared it one of the most encouraging seasons the club had ever had. He justified this rather odd claim by citing the improved enthusiasm and youth of the side. It's hard. When you're talking about the future of the club and you haven't done anything for 28 years... You're in a bit of strife, aren't you? <laughs> the yellow and brown print. Yeah. Okay. In 11th position, and I'm going to zoom through this one, <laughs> was Melbourne with three losses, 14 wins, one draw, and a percentage of 80.1. The lowly Ds. Mm, after Poor so guys. much promise last season. I know. Mm. They were looking so good. So coached by uh, the Red Fox, Norm Smith, captained by Dennis Cordner again. Their best and fairest winner was Ken Melville. And uh, lead goal kicker was Bob McKenzie with 38. Mm. All right. So, Kaz, you asked me, I think two episodes ago, about the father-son rule, where it had actually come from. Mm. Um, well, I can tell you. I've, I've got the answer. Because who would benefit the most from the father-son rule? Then a great son of a father. The demons. <laughs> son of a father. So, with Barassi living in Tasmania, the club was keen to keep him. Um, and successfully approached the league about introducing a father-son rule so he would not be lost to them via the suburban zone system. And hopefully mm. we have a daughter, a father-daughter, father, father. the mother-daughter rule yes. probably now too. Yeah. Mm. Um, which, I mean, comes to fruition this year because one of the debutants is Ron Barassi. Ron Barassi, mm. the Young son Ronald of Barassi the Jr. That's right. Um, who was killed during World War II, qualified to play for the Demons under the then father-son rule. The second player in the league to be picked up under the rule. First player, Tim? Get back to me. Uh, first player was a Carlton player the previous season. <laughs> there we go. Very good. He's good. Barassi wasn't the most skilled player in the competition, but he more than made up for it with his fierce determination. Um, his early performances gave no indication of how he was going to. Pra- um, how he gave no indication of how he was going to practically invent, or at the very least, popularize the Rock Rover position. In absolute, an absolute legend of the game, he will be. We'll be hearing his name for the next 40 episodes at least. Oh, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, and can you also tell us about Frank Bluey Adams? Bluey Adams, because um, he had red hair? Yep. During his career, he was renowned, renowned as one of the fastest league footballers of all time. A blisteringly quick and fiery wingman, Adams won the South Melbourne, uh, I want to say, Naya... That's yep. a place somewhere? Yep. yep Canberra, Cobram, Lilydale, and Ararat Gifts. Despite his speed and um, and sideline as a runner, he was often aff- um, afflicted with soft tissue injuries. Ah, uh, of course. Curtailing his yeah. career there. Um, and one other debutant I've got here is Peter Marquis, who was the maternal grandfather of the Gold Coast's Hugh Greenwood. Oh, there you oh, go. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, as Moz, as you said, it's a poor season for the Demons. Their first yeah. win came in round five, but in round four... Was Ron Barassi a junior's first game? He started on the bench against Footscray. Yep. At this time, Barassi was living with Norm Smith, but like we discussed with Jock McHale Jr., Norm Smith admits he was probably harder on Ron than yeah, anyone, yeah, anyone else. Yeah. 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 Uh, Barassi sat on the bench for most of the day, and he came on in the last ten minutes with the game already over. <laughs> 
He came up against the rampaging Charlie Sutton, who balked him easily. Barassi saying... He sold me a dummy and I felt like a bloody dill. Um, after the match, Sutton introduced himself and said to him... Son, players' hands are faster than his body, so always go for the body. Mm, good advice. Still hold strong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Round five was their very first win of the season against Essendon. Mind you, chip. 11 points. Um, now, ranked six... Rain six. Round six. Heavy rain caused the crowds to stay away from the VFL games in droves. Um, round five. Heavy rains caused the crowds to stay away from VFL games in droves, and the match at Windy Hill was no exception. Uh, only 10,000 people turning up to see Melbourne get their first win against Essendon. So get their first win of the season, which was against Essendon, with John Coleman being well held by Noel McMahon. Um, the two sides struggled into the last quarter, with Melbourne playing a superior wet-weather football. The lead changed hands several times during the last quarter before Essendon took a three-point lead with two minutes to play. The lead was back to a point before Mike Woods scored from a set shot before the final siren sounded with the balls in the hand, ball in the hands of Dennis Cordner. He kicked the goal to extend the margin to 11 points. In round 11, against St Kilda, Ron Barassi made his real debut. Um, not start, so starting on the field. Um, and he actually had a chance to make himself a hero in the last quarter, but missed a clutch goal, which ultimately allowed the Saints to hang on and win. Oh. <laughs> Potential. Yeah, round 12. Two of the three worst teams played out a thrilling draw, <laughs> which left the Demons last. Um, so I believe this was against Richmond. Yeah, yeah. The lowest one. Mm. Uh, it was against Richmond. Um, at quarter time, it looked like the Demons were going to run away with it with a big win, but by half time, the Tigers were within 10 points and had taken a lead at three quarter time. Both sides kicked three goals each in the final term. 20th man Thompson Gold to put Melbourne ahead, but Richmond equalised. Ken Elberston had a shot that missed scoring, missed scoring a behind by inches, and the match ended with the two sides locked together. Round 14, after eight straight weeks without a win, the Demons finally stock, struck gold in a thrilling victory over North Melbourne. Um, they were forced to fight back for three quarter time, from a three-quarter time deficit, but were lifted to victory after introducing quicker small men to the side. Scores were level until Melbourne kicked three behinds late to win the game, which I know you guys will be happy against about because you hate North Melbourne. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Round 17, the Demons started the day in last place, but climbed off the canvas with a surprise victory over fifth place Fitzroy. Fitzroy reorganised their side at halftime and narrowly took the lead back before running out of gas in the final quarter, which allowed the Demons to steamroll them and register their third win of the season. Um, but very disappointing. Norm Smith wasn't too impressed, but had introduced a lot of young players. Yeah. Mm. Which, we, I mean, we talked about two absolute champions there in Barassi and Frank Adams. Um, and they lost five games by no fewer than ten points. Uh, it should be said also one of the other... Um, uh, Debutants won the BNF that year as well. Who was that? Uh, it was. Oh, I had it before. Hang on. Um, no, who did I say? Why are you looking that up, Charlie? May I ask why bluey means redhead? It's like the opposite thing. Gotcha. Red and blue. Yeah. yeah. Red That's and blue. what I assumed it was. It's like reverse slang. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Yeah. Like it. Um, Ken Melville. Ken Melville, new pickup. Won the BNF. There you go. There you go. Oh, that's me. All right. So in 10th position was Richmond. Uh, They also had three wins, 14 losses and one draw, um, but a slightly higher percentage than Melbourne on 81.3. Thank you, Anna. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, (laughs) So uh, captain by Desro this year and coached by Albie Pan. Yes. Uh, Their best and fairest winner was Havel Rowe. 
and their leader goal kicker was Ron Branton with 22. Yes. Um, Kaz and I talked about that last episode um, while we were waiting for you, mm. that Jack Dyer had kind of been pushed out by the club. Yes. Um, forced to kind of to fall on his sword, I guess, because they had their eyes on a South Australian, but they couldn't get him across. So Obi Panam as reserves coach was elevated to senior coach um, because he knew the players. But there were lots of uh, Jack Dyer loyalists who didn't really care for Panam. No, and there's a bit of news about them pleading for Dyer to come back. Yeah. Mm. Um, we've got some debutantes as well. We've got Kevin Kopok mm. and another big Richmond name, Tommy Hafey. Wee. Here we go. Tom Hafey originally joined Richmond from East Melbourne. By his own admission, he was a battler as far as playing the game. He was a fitness fanatic in the truest sense of the word, and each day he went through a vigorous routine which consisted of swimming, running, and weights. Uh, A non-drinker and non-smoker, his only real vice is ice cream. (laughs) (laughs) He he would uh, become known as one of the greatest coaches in the league. Yes. Great. Looking forward to him debuting. But a very un-Richmond-like season. Well... You know, compared to what they've been in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. Brown won. They had a, a really good win over Melbourne by a goal, but then they fell into a massive form slump, the likes of which had not been seen at Richmond in some time. They lost their next nine games in a row. The media describing them as cumbersome, top-heavy, slow, lumbering, and without desire. Um, and there was, I think at this stage, Jack Dyer was running a pub. Yes. And people were... People were just dropping in, asking him to come back, and yeah. he, he declined. Yeah. Which, I mean, is probably for the best in the end. Yeah. Like, he wasn't some magical elixir that was suddenly going to no, exactly. fix them, was he? Round 11, they stopped this streak by beating Hawthorne by 34 points. Umpire Max Bloomfield, Bloomfield blew the whistle five times in three minutes at one stage, prompting a spectator to yell out, You're getting more time off than the Wharfies! <laughs> O'Rourke kicked five for the Tigers in this one. Um, a draw with Melbourne the following week happened, uh, and a 14-point win over St Kilda was the only other semi-bright spots in what was a very disappointing season and their worst ever finish in the VFL. Wow. Yeah. Ma- massive difference between the bottom and top teams this year. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes even, even spread. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Not this year. Not this year, Kaz. <laughs> All right. St Kilda were above Richmond in ninth spot. They had five wins, 13 losses and a lowly percentage of 68.2. Oh, that is low. It is. The lowest Sounds like when I went. Yeah, you're right, but they're they're ninth. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. So, uh, coached by Cole Williamson this year, captained by Keith Drynan. He was also their best and fairest winner. And we had Peter Bennett with 36 goals, leading the goal kicking for the Saints this year. Yeah, I mean, they didn't finish last, though. No, so good on them? Yeah, Yeah, I would say. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we've got some debutantes in Bill Linger. Billinger. Billinger. Uh, Graham Minahan. But pre-season, St Kilda sacked more than half its list from the previous season. Oh, really? Yeah. So, at the pre-season dinner, the captain uh, traditionally got up and spoke. So, Keith Drennian stood up and said... Normally, at this time, I congratulate all the new players on making the list and wish, wish them the best of luck. On this occasion, I'd like to congratulate the older players that are still left. May we all have good seasons. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, last season we spoke about John Coffey, who had um, tried to get a clearance from St Kilda to, I think it was Morwell in Gippsland League. He had applied 10 times for a clearance and 10 times he was denied by St Kilda. Aww. They just didn't want to let him go. Um, so much so that Morwell, who he was supposed to be going to, 
told every other country league in Victoria, if St Kilda ask you for a clearance, deny it, deny it. Um, so they kind of got them to gang up on St Kilda. Oh, great. Um, both both clubs and players sought legal advice. The dispute dragged on for weeks until finally he was given the clearance. I don't understand. Surely asking 10 times, you'd just be like, well, he doesn't want to be here. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not like he's Ron Clegg or anything. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but maybe it's the fear of, you know, if he leaves, other players will leave yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, so, and they want to make it difficult for other players. Like, to leave, They don't yeah. want to make it easy for any player to leave. No. So if you're a player at St Kilda and you want to go somewhere, you're like, well, I'm going to have to apply 10 times. That's, yeah, yeah. let's just leave it. Yeah. Life admin. Yep. <laughs> uh, the Saints had their first win in round two over the Hawks with Peter Bennett kicking five. They beat the Tigers by three goals in round four before a controversial game against Carlton. Uh, in the third quarter of that match, Peter Bland ta- tangled with Chuka Howell. Bland kneed Howell in the groin. Then when Hal rose and approached him, Bland struck him again. Oh, what? More Carlton players rushed in and it became a free-for-all. At least 20 players were involved. A fan wandered on and he was flattened by a St Kilda player. <laughs> uh, police and umpires had to break up the melee. Uh, at the tribunal in the following days, Bland argued that the kick to the groin was just in a collision and eyewitnesses corroborated the story, but he still copped the four-week ban. The Saints lost by nine points. Six losses in a row didn't help the Saints' season, and in round 11, they broke their run with a four-point win over the Demons. Oh, great. The one in which Barassi could have been the hero, but he wasn't. Yeah. Round 12, Peter Bland came back from his suspension through the reserves, and he was back for the first game of the seniors against North Melbourne, but it was short-lived, for he was suspended again. Uh, in this game, he charged. He was charged with kicking kangaroo player Laurie Icky. Bland had been going for a mark when Icky came from behind him, hit him heavily in the region of the shoulders and fell to the ground. Bland had then kicked Icky in the stomach. <laughs> At the tribunal, he claimed he couldn't remember. He copped an eight-week ban. Jeez. They lost his game by 85. <laughs> uh, look, the Saints bounced back to beat Hawthorne again, but in round 15, disaster struck, uh, losing to the Tigers. Uh, and in this game, Peter Bennett collided with Richmond sentiment Havel Rowe. Uh, after taking a mask on the chest, he was admitted to the Alfred Hospital after the match with a doubly fractured jaw. Oh, my God. Mm. He underwent an operation, and um, also in this game, first-year player Lindley broke his ankle. Their last win in round 16 got some revenge over Carlton. They beat them by five points at Junction Oval, but yeah. it's a second-kilder kind of year. <laughs> Just another <laughs> year. All right, South Melbourne had a nice even nine wins, nine losses, and a percentage of 107.8. Ah, very, very close there. So, uh, in 53, we had a new coach at South, and then we know well. Oh, I was excited when I read this. Yeah, me too. Laurie Nash. Yes. Oh, great. Captain by Ron Clegg. Best and fairest winner, Jim Taylor. And Ian Gillett with 34 being their leading goal kicker. So I'm mm. imagining the uh, the uh, team meeting, Laurie Nash on a big leather sofa, just this sitting is, back and just know, pointing. We talked about the speeches that we've heard before about it being like a team a team game, not a uh, <laughs> it's not an not an individual sport. Laurie Nash should be sitting there going. I, I need you all to do your very best, you know. Well, wait until... Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I've got, okay. got a quote We've from got him. a quote oh, from yes. him. Great. Um, I want to hear some... I want to see some real individual work out there, <laughs> yeah. fellas. Obviously, Larry, Laurie Nash, we know what kind of player he is. Um, one of the greats. One of the greats. If you ask him who his favourite... Who, who the best player he's ever seen is, he'll like say, I'll look at him in the mirror every day. <laughs> um, so this is what he declared as coming in a South, South coach. I was in South's last premiership side in 1933. Now I expect to be the first old player to coach them to a premiership. 
With specialised training, I will improve every South player, 33 and a third percent, and we will win the Coronation Premiership. <laughs> well, I did it, so you he guys is. should be able yep. to. Yep. He has immediately declared, we, we're going to win it this year. Because <laughs> I'm going to make you better. Yeah. <laughs> because I was the best. Because I was the best. So now you're going to be better because I'm here. God, I love I, love I don't know Ash. if you know this, guys, but I was the last person to win a premiership with this club. <laughs> He's so great. Uh, it's like an American sportsman, isn't it? Yeah. Just the way they come out and they're so, yes. so much bravado. Yeah, it's so good. He's like that. Um, oh we've got a God. debutant in John Svensson, so all our Swedish listeners out there. Ah. Yeah, I'm sure there's some kind of Swedish connection. <laughs> um, now, Ron Clegg recovered from his knee cartilage surgery the previous season and, as you said, was elevated to captain. Yes. Now, previous coaching traditions at South Melbourne meant no visitors could come into the rooms. Ah. Um, they were kind of hush- ushered out. But Nash invited all the old players to come in and even included them in his pre-match speech before round one against Collingwood. Um, however, this didn't inspire the players as the players smashed them. <laughs> um, but then the, the Swannies surprised the Bombers next week, allow, although they did allow Coleman to kick 11 goals. Um, and in this game, their supporters showered Coleman with bottles and rubbish while he took a shot from the boundary. Uh, but they beat the Bombers. Oh. Coleman kicked 11 of their 13 goals, but... You know, one man team. Uh, Billy Gunn was best on ground, a, uh, a McCracken award winner there. Yep. <laughs> Shooter. Uh, now, look, Laurie Nash was an interesting coach, um, and he kind of expected the players he coached to do same, the same things he could do. Well, yeah. And, this, and it yeah. frustrated the hell out of him that they couldn't. Yeah. So, like, he'd, he'd get out the balls at training, he'd have pot shots from all angles, and he'd, just, he'd get them all, and they just they couldn't. Some players like Clegg, like him and Clegg was a bit of a love fest, but like if you couldn't do what Nash could do, then like he didn't really respect you. Which is Everyone. the opposite of what you should be doing. Yeah. Because you can't rely on your stars to win games. No. no. That is so funny. And the wheels are going to fall off soon, yeah. Yeah, it's just like I just kick it like this. Yeah, just do what <laughs> just I do. do. Yeah. Um, round five, South played their 1,000th match against North Melbourne, but lost a close one by four points. They won. They did win four in a tr- on the trot between round seven and eleven, and finals again looked probable. But then they lost five in a row, dropping down to eighth. They won their final three, including a round seventeen win over Geelong, which uh, was Geelong's biggest loss for the year by forty-three. Uh, but in the end, it was a disappointing season, and sadly, Laurie Nash wasn't reappointed. Huh. I know we only get him for one season. Terrible. All right, North Melbourne also finished with nine wins, nine losses, and a percentage of 107.8. Yes, so uh, in 53, coached by Wally Carter, captained by Kev Dynan. Uh, their best and fairest winner was Jack O'Halloran. And their lead goal kicker was Gerald Marchese, or Marchese, with 49. Yes, um, now, it, North Melbourne's season started in December. And it was a very off-field thing that happened. Um, in December of 1952, four North Melbourne players were injured in a car crash. Oh. Um, their car smashed into a tree at the corner of Curzon and Victoria Streets. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, in North Melbourne at about 10.30 at night. Um, hospital authorities said the driver must have been blinded by the storm that had occurred. The players involved were John Reeves, who was the ruckman. He broke his jaw and had several stitches and cuts under his eye. Um, halfback flanker Les Reeves had a lacerated ear, cuts to his face, but he was in, in okay condition. Jock Spencer was in, suffered from shock and concussion, and Pat Kelly, who suffered minor injuries. Um, so yeah, crashed into a tree. So that's really hampered their preseason. Seriously. And they would kind of take some time to come back and, and come back into you know proper football form. Round one against St Kilda, John Reeves and Pat Kelly would play in the game five months after the action, but 
uh, but both players wouldn't play again for a while. After um, that first after round. After that first game, yeah, Reeves' knee kept him out. Although the Roos won this game, Alan Aylett kicked four. The Roos actually won their first three games, surprisingly. They beat Collingwood by seven goals, pipped the Demons by a point. But, you guys will be happy to hear this, North Melbourne won't beat the Demons again until 1965. Happy with that? <laughs> uh, that's what, 12 straight seasons of uh, smashing the Roos. Maybe, uh, maybe that comes out on balance then for what they've done to us more recently. <laughs> yeah. uh, round four, Jock Spencer came back against Fitzroy in a loss, but he, wouldn't, he would be straight back out again. Um, also in this match, Jock McCorkle broke his leg in the last minute of the uh, their loss. Les Reeves would come back in round six in a loss to Essendon, but he would remain in the side for a few weeks and then go back out. In round nine against Richmond, spectator William Darcy Nickel hits Tiger Ray Poulter with an apple from the crowd and hurls abuse at him after the game against North Melbourne. He's fined five pounds for the apple throw and three pounds for verbal abuse. The Kangaroos <laughs> win by three. <laughs> Uh, North had good wins over Hawthorne and Fitzroy and came so close to being the first team to beat Geelong, only going down by a point. Yeah. But in the end, injuries, uh, the accident and missing players meant it was a disappointing season. Yeah. Mm. I mean, Unfortunately. Which was derailed before the game. season even started, really. Fitzroy, 10 wins, 8 losses, percentage of 85 on the dot. Yes, the, uh, the not-so-longer gorillas. Uh, this the Maroons now, uh, captain coached by the Baron Alan Ruthven. Uh, their best and fairest winner this year was Don Finesse, and lead goal kicker was Joe Hickey with forty. Tony Ongarello just couldn't get it done again this yeah, year. He's, he's one of the worst kicks in the league. <laughs> like when we talked about him last week, he's renowned for being a terrible kick. Really? Oh. Yeah. So what he would have kicked like fifty, one hundred. Something like yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> uh, if, he'd, if he'd even made a point. Yeah. Uh, some debutants, we've got Arnie Bench, Reg Renwick, Graham Spooner, Charlie Wanhope, and Bob Henderson. Also, Fitzroy recruited Tom Meehan to come in and replace Vic Chanter as a fullback, mm-hmm. mainly because Meehan had experience playing on Coleman, and that was kind of what they were building for. Really? But Chanter's the only bloke to hold Coleman goal? Yeah, but Chanter retired. Point. Oh, yeah, of yeah. course he did. Yeah, yeah. okay. Um, so things started well. They won five of their first seven games... Yeah, five of their first seven games, three by under two goals. Uh, but round five was a game they wouldn't forget. <laughs> and almost a game no one would ever forget. Mm. Actually, I'll come back to that. Round four, ah. Fitzroy came back from 16 points down at three-quarter time against Kangaroos. Joe Hickey kicking four of his eight goals in that last quarter of an 11-point win. But round five, they came so close to being the only team in VFL-AFL history to be held scoreless for a game. They were playing Footscray at the Western Oval. <gasps> which was played against heavy rain and a burst water main. The Dogs scored five goals, three by half-time to Fitzroy's zero. Then the Dogs added three, two in the third to Fitzroy's zero. zero. (laughs) It got to halfway through the last quarter before Alan Ruffman managed to get their only shot at goal. So from a boundary throw-in, Ruffman kicked the ball in mid-air and it just rolled through with about six minutes remaining in the match. As a goal. As a goal. To date, it remains the longest amount of time a team has been kept scoreless in a match. And the score of one goal, six, would stand as their lo- Fitzroy's official lowest score in history. Um, and Ruffin actually remembers that uh, game in a memoir. Uh, do I remember it? Sure. The outer side of the ground was 18 inches underwater. I think a drain was blocked and it rained all day. When I finally kicked the goal, it skidded through and even the Fitzroy supporters booed me. <laughs> would have been a Bronx cheer. <laughs> one of our players, Arnie Bench, was getting married that Saturday night and I think the supporters thought we'd been on the grog celebrating. If I hadn't kicked the goal, it would have been a world record. Cool. Um, so, yeah, so here's a great picture of that match and the, and the water. 
So yeah, as I think Moz will, will put that up on the uh, socials. That's Great. incredible. It looks like they're on a slip and slide. Oh, ridiculous. <laughs> it's underwater. Um, yeah, it's literally <laughs> underwater. I've got to say though, mm. before we move on from that match, yeah. Um, I think we're looking at it the, totally the wrong way. Yeah. That is the most accurate a team has ever been in a game. 100% accurate. That is true. <laughs> so it just depends oh, on how you place it, right? That's beautiful, Charlie. Yeah, thank you. Glass half Very positive. Ball. I am over Silver here. Uh, and look, speaking of glass half full, Fitzroy <laughs> did bounce back the next week to beat the, uh, the Demons. Oh, great. The MCG. <laughs> great. So their accuracy obviously inspired them. Um, then they beat Collingwood by a point at Vic Park in round 11. In this game, uh, forward Joe Hockey kicked two goals. One, uh, Joe Hickey, sorry, not Joe Hockey. Uh, in the first, in the first half, uh, but they had, sorry, so Joe Hickey kicked two goals. One in the first half, but then he had a day to forget as he missed so many gettable shots. So it came as a relief slash surprise when, in the dying minutes, he kicked the winning goal to put the Maroons a point ahead um, to win the second home and away match in a row they'd beaten Collingwood by a point. Um, so 10 wins for the season wasn't a disaster, but more was expected of this team that had finished third the year before. Yeah. A mm. uh, major cause of this was failure of several good players to recapture the form from the previous season, and injuries to key players well, didn't yeah, help. And losing Vic Tanner is a killer. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And look, they're a, they're a top-heavy side, um, and the wet weather did suit them. Yeah. But they're not a fast team. No. Which gets us to... To Carlton. Carlton. Car- Carlton. Carlton finished fifth, with also with 10 wins and eight losses and a percentage of 107.6. So, coached by Perce Bentley here, their, lead, their captain was Ken Hands. He was also their best and fairest winner. And then we had Jack Spencer with 32 goals, being their lead goal kicker. Yes. Uh, some debutantes, we've got Dick Gill, Peter Bevilacqua, and John James. Kaz, do you want to tell us a little bit about John James? One of the game's great defenders, Johnny James, was uh, a Carlton legend. Uh, though just 175 centimetres tall, he was highly skilled, tenacious, and a spectacularly strong mark. Johnny was recruited from St. Patrick's College, Ballarat. Uh, one performance of note was... Uh, the day he kicked 35 goals in one game for his school. 12 goals what? in the first quarter. <laughs> did I, is that, yeah, did in schoolboy football, yes. That um, is outrageous, isn't um, it? So it was in the St. Patrick's team. The tally was 48-21, <laughs> which is uh, 316th against Ballarat High School in July. Uh, Didn't say what the other team score was, but it doesn't matter because that's huge. <laughs> um, so Blue's first win of the season was over the Demons in round two. I, I seem to be talking about a lot, lot of Demons losses. A lot of losses. Demons yeah, losses, yeah. I'm not, not on purpose. No, I swear. Um, Keith Warburton was back in the side after his brush with death in the semi-final last year. Um in this game, Keith Warburton was actually brilliant. He was a centerman. His spectacular marking was a highlight, um, and he was best of field. In round three, despite back pocket Bruce Combin was being missing with a broken blood vessel in his neck, uh, and J- Doug Beasy also missing for his his wedding, um, Jack Chukahow was carrying a thigh injury, and fullback Harry Dern badly jarred both thumbs. Great. Oh. Um, Bill, there's more. Bill Milroy had a bruised thigh. Despite all of this, the Blues still beat the Tigers by a goal. <laughs> Tony Wash kicked six goals, and Ruckman Chukahau kicked four in his 200th game uh, in what was a high scoring thriller. Great. <laughs> Round 11, there was a, a very even team performance from the Blues. The team responded to Coach Purse Bentley's urgings uh, and comfortably beat the Swans by four goals. 
Um, they were back in the sixth spot on the ladder, one win and percentage short of a finals berth. They then beat the Demons again by 26 in round 14. Carlton's forward line functioned as it should in the home and away season. Um, against Richmond in this game, Blues coach Perce Bentley played George Ferry as a decoy full forward with Chuka Howe drifting across from the pocket uh, as the real forward. Aided by Ken Han's dominance in the ruck, this structure worked as planned. Chuka Howe kicked seven and Carlton won by 27. With a more of a full team in that win against Richmond. Yeah. yeah. Without a few broken thumbs and someone yes. off for a wedding. Yes. Uh, lovely. Why are these players scheduling weddings mid-season as well? <laughs> it happens. It's less serious. Yeah. Marriage is more important than football to these guys. Not so much anymore. Uh, <laughs> um, but then Collingwood all but ended Richmond, uh, Carlton's finals chances in round 15, defeating them. Round 17, they smashed the Hawks, keeping them scoreless in the first quarter, uh, winning by seven goals, Max Wren with four. In round 18, Peter Bevilacqua made his debut. Now, although 130 footballers are known to have Italian origins and have played at least one AFL VFL game, Peter Bevilacqua is the only one who was born in Italy. Oh. Mm. So he played, you know, he, this, I think this is his one season he played. Uh, he was born at Lamis, Lamis, L-A-M-I-S, mm. in the province of Foggia. Am I saying sure. that right, Kaz? <laughs> sure. On in 1933, Christian de Pietro Paolo, who left Italy on Christmas Day in 1938 and later lived in Carlton. Uh, he made his debut in this game, which was a skillful, entertaining contest at Arden Street. Both sides kicked six goals in the last quarter as Carlton edged out north by 11 points. Ah, molto bene. Post-season, 45 players and officials, including President Kenneth G. Luke, um, Percy Bentley and the senior coach, they spent the weekend in October in a hotel in Camperdown, Camperdown as an end-of-season trip. <laughs> Woo! One of the highlights was a cricket match against the Camperdown footballers in which skipper Ken Hands made a century. A pleasant Sunday morning was spent in the Camperdown Football Club following a visit to the Manifold property in the district. Love it. <laughs> Camperdown. Essendon. Yes. Top four. Hey, we're into the top four. Top we four. made it. Back. Finals. Bottom of the top four, Essendon. Yes. Bottom of the top <laughs> 13 wins, five losses, and a percentage of 129.9. Mm. Coached by the king, yeah. Dick Reynolds himself again. Captained by Bill Hutchison again. Best and fairest was Bill Hutchison again. Lead goal kicker was, was John, John Coleman, Coleman again. again. <laughs> but... With only 97 this year, yes, not not that. over 100, and we will talk about that. Um, yes. Can we change the record down at Essendon? I mean, God. Debbie yeah. um, <laughs> Totsa, Ian Monks, and Hugh Mitchell. We've got a bit about Hugh Mitchell there, Kazman. Uh, yes, we do. Arriving at Essendon from Mooney Imperials in 1953, Hugh Mitchell's impressive form during a handful of games uh, for the thirds saw him promoted almost straight away into the seniors where he was a mainstay for the next 14 and a half seasons as a clever, elusive ruck rover. Excellent. All right, so round one against Fitzroy, John Coleman seemed to want revenge for his goalless game the previous season. (laughs) The Maroons kicked the first two, but Coleman had his first touch soon after with a towering mark over new Maroon Tom Meehan. Coleman reflecting... I didn't have a hope of getting it. I twisted myself in midair, felt the ball touch my hands and relaxed. I let myself fall loosely to the ground and was as surprised as anyone to find I still had the ball. Uh, so this mark is depicted in the Coleman statue outside the MCG. Oh, cool. Ah. Mm. Um, so back to the game. Coleman had three by quarter time, three more within 66 seconds of the second quarter. 
Um, Hutchie set him up for another before half time. The Bombers ended up winning by 23 points. Coleman kicked 10 goals too. Great start. In round two, Coleman kicked 11 of Essendon's 13 goals against South Melbourne. We know they lost that game by 13 points. Um, in this crowd were Bob Pratt and Vic Belcher, South Melbourne legends, and they couldn't believe that Coleman wasn't being protected more by his own players, that like no one was blocking for him or creating space for him. Oh, that, really? That he was just being battered and bruised by the umpires. Um, in round three, he, he kicked two goals five at half... He'd had two goals five... Coleman had two goals five at halftime. On his way to ten goals, the Bombers smashing the Saints. So Coleman, after three rounds, he kicked 31 goals. <laughs> in round six, in a game against North Melbourne, Essendon won a seesawing game. Coleman kicked three goals. However... His towering mark over fullback Vic Lawrence would be forever immortalised in the Coleman Medal. Ah, beautiful. Oh, wow. Yeah, so if you look mm-hmm. at, that is a great that image there, really which I will put on uh, on Twitter as well. Round seven, in the lead up to the game against Richmond, Coleman cut his hand on a bottle at work, but this didn't worry him. He kicked six goals. A six goal win. Round eight, Carlton led Essendon 6 6 to one point at quarter time. Um, but only kicked one goal five for the remainder of the match as Essendon stormed back into this. Coleman kicked five goals in 15 minutes in the second quarter, finishing the match with six as the Bombers won by 45. Oh, this is good stuff, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Round 10, the Bombers beat the Magpies at Windy Hill to take second spot from them. Jack uh, Jack Hamilton, future uh, chairman of the VFL, was moved off Coleman as he kicked six goals two and the Bombers won by 28. Round 13, coming into this game against South Melbourne, Norm MacDonald... A dashing half-back flanker for Essendon, had not kicked a league goal, but would leave the match with three, the only three of his VFL career. Oh, That's incredible. Yeah. Three in so one neat. game. Yeah. Mm. Good day. Uh, Essendon would win this game. We'd get some revenge over South Melbourne. Mm. I'm still going. <laughs> Sorry. Um, then round 15, <laughs> Essendon handed Geelong their second successive defeat, uh, beating them by 11 points at Windy Hill. Coleman started nervously with one goal five in the first half, but finished with four. In the lead-up to this top-of-the-table clash, because Essendon and Geelong were 1-2, and two, uh, Hector Lacey called for the game to be moved to the MCG so a bigger crowd could be present. Ah. Which I think is the first time I've kind of read about that happening. Yeah. 41,000 people showed up at Windy Hill. 6,000 had to be turned away at the gate. Yeah. Um, never before had anything like that been seen at, at Essendon. Down at Windy Hill. Yeah, and imagine. The, I mean, those small suburban grounds packed to the brim. The atmosphere yeah. would have been electric. Uh, but look, a one-point loss to Essendon, to North Melbourne would cost Essendon the double chance. Uh, in this game, Coleman kicked a late goal to put them within two points. Then from the next centre bounce, the ball came along and Coleman dived sideways for the mark and took it, but the goal umpire ruled it had already crossed the boundary line, the goal line. Yep. Bombers mm-hmm. claimed differently, but it didn't matter. They'd lost by a point. Um, so heading into the final match against Richmond, they couldn't be dislodged from the four. Um, in this game, Coleman played on two opponents, opponents uh, but he had another lazy 10 goals. Bill Hutchinson's foot passing was also exceptional. Good on him. Mm. In third, Posse. Footscray, also on 13 wins and 5 losses, but a huge percentage of 136.5. So Footscray back up there. Yeah, so that's their yo-yo there. Yeah, up After, and down, although, up and although down. they did make it last season as well. Oh, they did? They were in the finals. So yes. Oh, that, yeah, that's right. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, dropped straight out. So. Hold on. No, they didn't. Sorry, I'm thinking two years ago. No, they didn't. No, it was, it. it was their down year last yeah. year. This is their up year. So, coached by Charlie Sutton, uh, captain by Charlie Sutton, best and fairest winner was Harvey Stevens, and their lead goal kicker was Jack Collins with 50. Yes. Uh, debutant was Lionel Ollington. And Kaz, their president this year was Otto Grobecker. 
Yeah. Um, he had this is his second term as uh, president. Yeah, what? Does he qualify for the McCracken? Oh uh, yeah. Yep, oh, I'll put it down on the list. <laughs> uh, so this is their up year in the yo-yo. Such has been their pattern. But confidence was up. The club urged members to forget about last year. Forget about last year. Yeah. Forget about the fact that we can't win a final. Yeah. Let's see. Let's see what happens. So round one, the doggies made the most of Carlton's accuracy, which was very poor. So inaccuracy. Uh, to win by five <laughs> points. One report saying they had Sutonitis, as in they were able to cover weak spots all over the ground with exuberance and endeavour. <laughs> Now, we've already spoken about the uh, the round five game against Fitzroy, yes. victors of that mm-hmm. day. In that game, Collins and Duffy kicked three each. Um, maybe they... Look, Fitzroy are supposed to be better in the wet, but they got smashed in that game. Fitzroy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe their youth and their energy helped them. But look, the Doggies really had a season to remember. They impressed everyone. Their wins were scrappy and rarely by more than six goals. Round 12, Jack Collins kicked seven against Carlton in a win, and he backed that up in round 15 with another seven over Melbourne. Um, they rode a bit of a winning. Well, they never had a massive winning streak. They, you know, won four, then lost one, and then won three, and then lost one. So they were they were never on a massive roll, but they were still con- pretty consistent. Yeah. Their final round match with Collingwood would see the winner given the double chance. The loser relegated to third to take on the resurgent Essendon team, which no one wanted to do. Um, the game didn't start well as they were kept scoreless in the first quarter, and then a goalless third quarter really put an end to their chances. Despite kicking six goals in the final quarter, they could never get on top of Collingwood and thus finished third. Um, but overall, overall the whole VFL season was pretty low scoring. Footscray's 959 points against, I think, is the lowest average points conceded per game since 1919. Yeah, mm. yeah. And it was the lowest high score since 24. Yeah, which was, uh, I think, Geelong's 136. Yeah, 21-10, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah but Footscray, yo-yoing back up into the finals. Whoop, whoop. Collingwood finished second this season. 14 wins, four losses, percentage of 123.5. Yes, so the Pies, coached by Fonz Kine, captained by Lou the Lip, uh, Richards. Uh, best and fairest winner was Bob Rose, and he was also their leading goal kicker with 33. Yeah. Some debutantes, Kazman, we've got Keith Bromage and Murray Wiedemann. <laughs> Tell us a bit about those two. Gladly, Keith Bromage. Um, Bromage um, Bromage <laughs> created a sensation when selected for his debut for the Magpies in 1953s he um, uh, he was just 15 years now this is important 287 days old and we'll get to that a highly talented for- forward who never quite lived up to his enormous potential he was uh, thought to be the youngest player to ever play league football until Claude Clo or Claude Clough Cloth I think a Cloth yeah was uh, identified as starting at 15 years and only 209 days old. Can you imagine playing league football at 15? No. No. Ridiculous. (laughs) I can't even imagine playing against... I couldn't even imagine playing against 18-year-olds when I was 15. Yeah. Um, And Murray Wiedemann, Kazman. Yes. Uh, Murray, uh, with movie star looks and buckets of talent... Wiedemann came on the tra- uh, to train at the Pies at the beginning of 1952 season. Fonz Kine was the Magpies coach at the time, and Murray um, told was told was told to go away and come back the following year. That was Murray's first setback in football. It hurt Wiedemann, who a few years earlier had represented Victoria in the school schoolboys team against other states, um, but he made his debut for Collingwood at age 17 and a half and would go on to be known as the team enforcer. Mm. 
there's always one of those around local well, grounds, look, isn't there? You, uh, you Melbourne supporters aren't going to like him in a few years. <laughs> uh, his, his role in the 1958 grand final, Tim, yeah. uh, probably is what he's best known for. Yeah. Should he, should he still be in prison? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, round one was a comprehensive win over the Swans at Victoria Park. Um, they then went to North Melbourne with one eye on the next week's fixture against Geelong. But because of this, North Melbourne jumped them and ran away to 43-point winners. This is it. Yeah. Got to keep your eye on the Don't cars. think about what you're going to do with the ball yeah. before it's in your hands. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or next week. When it's, when yeah, exactly. Uh, so then they played the Cats next week and knocked, uh, they, sorry, and then the Cats knocked them off the following week anyway. Even after a week of methodical training to play the Cats and you know specific game plans, they were missing a few key men for this game against the Cats, but six straight behinds in the third quarter didn't help their cause either. Um, neither did seven behinds to Bob Rose. <laughs> Yeah, for well. the game but they came away confident they could beat a Geelong team if they had their full side Yeah, and this is important going forward they beat the, beat the Blues in round 4 which kick-started their 6 game winning streak round 7 they had a cracking game against the Doggies they jumped out to a 5 goal lead early but they the Doggies came back the Pies sprayed shots into the 3rd uh, but were held goalless for, from at least 10 attempts but in the final term they couldn't even score as the Doggies came roaring home the final minutes of the game were complete madness as the Pies clung to their diminishing lead and the Dogs closing in on what would have been a famous victory. Uh, in the end, it was only three towering marks in the teeth of goal from best on ground Neil Mann that saved the game for the Magpies as they hung on by a point. The Mighty Bombers then broke the streak in round 10 and then the Maroons made it back-to-back losses the next week despite the Pies having nine more scoring shots but they lost by a point. Round 14 was a big match they'd been eyeing off. The return match against Geelong at Cardinia. Geelong had not lost a game all season. Mm-hmm. Hadn't lost since, I think it was May or June last season. Yep. The Cats started well, and if not for the Pies' defence of Kinch, Waller and Sharp, Gooch and Kingston, they would have run away with the match in the first quarter. They, the Pies trailed by two points at half-time, but Fonz Kine told them... You've taken their best shots, and they haven't got any more. Keep at them which was true. So by three-quarter time, they had clawed to within a point. In that last quarter, the floodgates opened. The Cats added one goal while the Pies added four goals for to add to hand the Cats their first loss in 26 matches. In over 26 matches. Um, they would win the next three games in round 17. They came from behind to secure the double chance against Essen. Um, because, sorry, because Essen lost, so they had a double chance. Uh, Lou, Reed, Lou Richards kicking four goals. In this game against... Uh, round 17. Who did they play in round 17? I think it was North Melbourne. No, it wasn't. Uh, in this game against Richmond in round 17, Frank Tuck, who had played every single game that season, would be reported and suspended for striking Jack Collins. Also, Keith Bromage made his uh, his debut in that match as well that you were talking about, Kaz, the youngest player at the time thought wow. was. In the final game of the season, they took on the Doggies with a double chance on the line. We talked about the Magpies' defence preventing the Dogs scoring... F- anything until the second quarter um, by which time they had a sizable lead and just held on Bob Rose kicked three in that game as Collingwood are in the finals again so much violence Mm. (laughs) (laughs) always and on the top of the pecking order this season was Geelong with 15 wins three losses and the largest percentage of 143.3 yes all season on top all season on top coached by Red Chicky Captain by Fred Flanagan. Troubles there. Best and fairest was run by little Peter Pianto. Uh, and lead goal kicker was George Ganinian with 65. Should have been more. Yeah. Don't tell Peter Pianto he's not Italian. 
<laughs> he is, no, he's just not born in the yeah, exactly. Uh, a debutant was <laughs> Ivan Baumgartner. I'm guessing a German. Oh, Baumgartner. Baumgartner. Um, their round one smashing of Hawthorne was played without the use of a siren, resorting to a bell for the first two quarters. Oh, down at Cardinal. Right. In the round two match against Footscray, the highlight was Neil Trezise kicking eight goals, including six in succession as the Cats smashed the doggies. Round five, Ganinian kicked 11 goals in a win over the Tigers. Uh, it wasn't until round six that the 1952 pennant was hoisted by Sir Dallas Brooks, Governor of Victoria. I don't know why they waited until round six to, to raise the pennant. No. Uh, this was a big win over South Melbourne. Um, and George Ganinian had a bit of a day out here as well. Round 11, playing North Melbourne, scores were level late in the match. As four minutes of time on had been played, Pianto made a break. Palmer hit it out to Troubles Flanagan, who sent the ball within a few yards of goal. The crowd roared as Swarbrick towered high to take a mark on an angle at the east side of the North goals. He kicked a point, and it was being signalled as the siren went. The win marked the newest winning streak in AFL-VFL history, breaking Collingwood's 20 in a row. So this was 21 wins in a row Geelong had now had across two seasons. So do we count across two seasons? Yeah. yeah. Yes. Okay. We're 21. We've kind of got to, don't we? Really, like... Yeah. yeah. Um, in round 14, the Cats took on Collingwood, riding a winning streak dating back to 1952, as we talked about. 23 matches in succession, 26 without a loss, um, which are both records. The winning streak ended against Collingwood. Uh, the Cats led by two points at three-quarter time, but the Pies ran away with it. Um, now, one player managed to play in all 26 of those matches in that oh. streak. Russell Renfrey. Hooker Renfrey. Hooker Renfrey. Hooker, yeah. Called Hooker because the way he kicked the ball is kind of like a hook kick. I'm hmm. glad that's why. Yeah, um, During this run of wins, the Cats... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> the Cats had an average winning margin of 32 points. That was too quick for me. Seven oh, players made their debut, and not one player was reported. Um, we also have a bit of audio of Troubles Flanagan commenting on the streak. So let's put that in here. Well, it was just unbelievable. And at that, that particular stage, we didn't really know what was, was happening game-wise because what, we, were, we, we were more concerned after a while to try and be defeated because we knew that it wasn't practical for a team to keep on winning indefinitely. The 27th game, which was played here at Cadillia Park, it was a quagmire. Safe for both sides, of course, and Collingwood was defeated us by a few points. So uh, that was why we were defeated. And there was a great, great lot of uh, a load lifted off our shoulders because we were quite happy to, for that to happen. But uh, that loss to Collingwood also kind of, I, I guess, opened up that vulnerability because in the next two of the next three games, they lost again. They lost to Essendon in that big game at Windy yep. Hill and then they got smashed by South Melbourne yeah Laurie Nash must have just been having a day out there <laughs> uh, in round 16 against Richmond umpire Beitzel awarded a free kick to Geelong's Norman Sharp at the time Tommy Hafey had the ball and when the whistle blew he threw it to the ground but as an act of discipline Beitzel made Hafey pick up the ball and hand it to Sharp <laughs> <laughs> um, they beat Melbourne in the final round to solidify top spots uh, where they had spent all season sitting which gets us now to a bit of Brownlow. Brownlow, hey? Yes. The Brownlow Downlow with Moz. Well, after last year's countback deciding the winner slash loser, this year Bill Hutchison wins outright. Yes. yes. He racked up 26 votes this season, winning fairly and squarely and all by himself. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, Essendon's Vice President Bill Brew said when he announced the winner... 
Hutchison has been an ornament to the game. I'm sure it will be popular with the public. Hutchison admitted after this win that the countback loss of the previous year had been one of the biggest disappointments of his life. He thought that it had been his only opportunity for Brownlow as he was getting on a bit mm. age-wise. Um, as mentioned in the last episode, Hutchison was awarded his 1952 Brownlow um, in 1989, but unfortunately had passed away five years earlier. The only one to not be yeah. alive at the time oh, of the really? retrospective yeah, of Brownlow. Yeah. Um, Essendon's secretary, Cookson, said that Hutchison had such success due to being able to drink more lemonade than any man I know. <laughs> because he was a teetotaler, he didn't drink. I was wondering if it yeah. was just a you know a, a nickname code. drink code name, but no, no. actually was lemonade. <laughs> um, Collingwood's future Hall of Famer Bob Rose finished this season with 22 votes, and Collingwood's future captain Neil Mann on 17 votes. So they obviously took votes off each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. that's a good point. Nice. And that wraps up the Brownlow. Thanks, oh, fantastic! Yeah. Now we've got an interesting. Uh, Interesting point of discussion about the yeah, Australian team, don't we? We sure do. So uh, previously we've been reading out the Sporting Globe's Team of the Year, which I will read out now. But we also had another um, Team of the Year available to us, which was based on the Adelaide Carnival. Yeah, okay. Um, so there are some similarities, but they there are also some big differences. Hey. And we'll probably post this on the socials as well. Okay, yeah. um, okay so the... Sporting Globe's Team of the Year. In the back line, there was Geelong's Bernie Smith, Footscray's Herb Henderson and Perth's Merv McIntosh. The halfbacks were Footscray's Jack Collins, Sturt's Len Fitzgerald and Richmond's Des Rowe. The centres were Collingwood's Des Healy, Essendon's Jack Clark and West Adelaide's Jack Lynch. Uh, half forwards were Collingwood's Bob Rose, Carlton's Jack Howell and South Adelaide's Jim Dean. The forwards were Richmond's Roy Wright, Essendon's John Coleman and Geelong's Peter Pianto. And the followers were Carlton's Ken Hands, North Launceston's John Leadham and Essendon's Bill Hutchison. Mm. Uh, Tasmanian. Yes. yes. There's, a little, there's a little bit of alliteration in that team. Oh, that was an absolute <laughs> mouthful. Yeah, Goodness me. Um, particularly... Uh, Roy Wright. Roy yeah. Wright. That's Roy hard Roy to say. Roy Wright, Peter Pianto, who else? Merv McIntosh. Merv McIntosh. Herb, Herb Henderson. Herb Henderson, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh. You've done well. Oh, my goodness gracious, yeah. Would you like me to read out the other one or should we... Well, maybe just the VFL players that were in it. Okay, the VFL players in the other team from the Adelaide Carnival were uh, Jack Clark, yeah. Essendon's Jack Clark, Essendon's John Coleman, Collingwood's Des Healy, Carlton's Jack Howell, Essendon's Bill Hutchison, Collingwood's Bob Rose, and Geelong's Bernie Smith. So you can see there is a, quite a bit of crossover there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because Collingwood's only got two players in, well, the same two players in both teams. Mm. Um, it must have just been a well-rounded team. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not, not real individuals there. Um, also, I think the interesting thing was, was that the Australian team announced from the Carnival actually got Blazers as well. They got an Australian Blazer. Ah, oh, so they did, yes. Yeah, which is, I think, the first time that had happened. That it makes but it not special. the last. No, no the, the Blazers really took off. Well, they brought it back what, recently, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I like it. I do too. Um, all right, that gets us to finals. Finals! Okay, so the first semi final. The first semi-final, which is uh, third versus fourth. Yes, Footscray versus Essendon. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yep, we've yes. been we've been corrected. Yes. Okay. Yep. Uh, so uh, <laughs> Footscray's seventh final since 1938. Having lost 
the six previous the ones. six previous mm-hmm. one exactly yeah so what they've lo- they lost in hang on let's let's look at that <laughs> I've got it I wrote it down because I thought it was interesting uh, so they lost they were eliminated in 38 42 44 46 48 and 51 yeah and 51 was against Essendon as well yeah. in the corresponding final. Um, so they'd have the jitters. So out there in front of 68,533 people. Absolutely. Some one In front of a, a big 95-kilometre wind as well. So Ugh. terrible day for football. Mm. Um, Coleman came into this game under a massive cloud. He had the flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably shouldn't have played. Um, so this massive win explains why Sutton won the toss and the Dogs started on fire with 10 scoring shots to one. Mm, yeah, yes. Um, but only kicking three goals, so really wasting opportunities. Um, Footscray showed rare courage and persistence in adverse conditions, and every man in the team played well. Herb Henderson, Footscray's fullback, played a great game in checking uh, Coleman, who only kicked one goal in the last quarter. Hey. Um, yeah, he had three disposal, kicking one goal, two, to finish three shy of another tonne, so that was disappointing. He couldn't kick another hundred. Um, but Footscray would win their first final. They would, oh, yes. Hey. So they ran out eight point winners. Yeah. Holding on with two goals in that last quarter. Coming from behind, I uh, don't no, staying in staying in front, which is incredible. Mm. Because considering, as you said, they had ten scoring shots to one in the first quarter, then it went the, exactly the other way: ten scoring shots to yeah. one in the second quarter. Uh, but Footscray managed to only kick a point rather than Essendon's goal. Uh, then it got a bit tighter. Maybe that ninety-five mile wind sort of dropped off a bit. Yeah. But managing to kick two goals to Essendon's one in the last quarter was the real thing that made it. Yeah, made the difference there. Best players were Peter Box, Ted Witten, and Angus Abbey for the Doggies. Uh, this was their first finals win. Supporters and players went wild. Fans throwing in cash. Uh, Charlie Sutton called it the greatest game of his life. He said the win was uh, for the players, the supporters, the men and women in all manner of capacities behind the Footscray Football Club, which make it the great club it was. Thanks and congratulations to all the players on the combination of their magnificent efforts today. And footage of this game is actually on YouTube as well. You can watch it. There's about three minutes that they found. It's all silent, but you can you can watch them all. You could basically take what Charlie Sutton's there and put it in the mouth of any grand final winner, and it's the same word. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so, Probably to the tight. second semi-final. Yes, Geelong Collingwood. First versus second. Last Ooh. year's uh, grand finalists. Yes. Replay. Um, the, the only... The team that knocked them off to stop their streak. This is it. And had one win each so far this year. Yeah, so Bonds Klein wanted to pressure the uh, the Cats' game plan, you know, really upset their forwards. This is um, it. Give them no space so they wouldn't cope. Well, that that's that's what they're... They're silky, they're pacey, and they just work to space. Whereas Collingwood were trying to shut them down. Yeah. Um, Pianto was his destructive best in this game. He kicked four of the six goals in the first half, which helped the Cats jump out to a 15-point lead until late shots brought the Pies within three the main break uh, Roseman and Mick Toomey turning it on for the Pies the Cats with the wind in the third quarter had much of the play but from their nine scoring shots they scored one goal while the Pies added two goals one uh, much like their round 11 match the Pies ran over the top of them in the final quarter with six goals to one Bob Rose with four for the day leading the Pies wow. mm. so yeah so as we just said Collingwood ran out uh, the winners there 13-12-90 to 8-12-60 mm. now I've got some I've got some goss for you. Oh, fantastic. Excellent. He does. Um, so, <coughs> George Ganinian, um, we know he was a, a grateful forward. He kicked, he was one John's leading goal kicker. He <laughs> He's was, been absolutely pivotal in the last two premierships. Yeah, absolutely he has. He was dropped for the last round of the season, came back for this one, but following this game, he was dropped again. Here's why. So he kicked 65 goals for the season, 
But it wasn't due to form. It was because George, a married man, had been playing up with a pretty nurse he had met. George, he'd been having an illicit affair. Uh, and Reg Hickey, the coach of Geelong, was a staunch Catholic man. Oh. He'd been kicking goals at the wrong end of the ground, mm. some would say. <laughs> oh. And for Ganyanian to have been having an illicit affair was cause for him to be dropped for the remainder of the season. Oh, so wow. Hickey, didn't want, uh, Hickey didn't want people like that in his club. Oh. Uh, Ganyanian says he was a victim of the times and these days no one would give two hoots. Uh, he'd stay away from the club for a while. He'd go and watch the grand final, which I'll talk about, but... Uh, Yes, it wasn't. It probably cost the club the grand final. Yeah. In the end. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Which gets us to the preliminary final, the dogs and the cats. It certainly does. Mm. Uh, yes, yeah, so in front of 58,615 people... Uh, Geelong came out firing, but well, couldn't they, quite kick it straight. They had the yips. Yeah. And the, and the doggies mm. with the monkey off their back uh, went into the match full of confidence with two goals, one in that first quarter. Uh, but it was a muddy, rainy game. like Just a terrible year for football in terms yeah, of weather. Yeah. Uh, the dogs led a low-scoring game at halftime by three points, but um, I think Geelong's finals experience helped them through this. Led by Bill McMaster, the Cats piled on six goals to two in the second half to run out 26-point winners. Yeah. Um, Footscray's brave efforts were no match for the Cats' experience, but Dogs captain Charlie Sutton was again chaired from the ground, the losing captain, uh, and he declared... We'll go into the 54 finals, a more experienced side, and again, it won't be lack of trying if we do not bring the pennant home next year. Yeah, prophetic. Uh, yeah. Which uh-huh. gets us to the grandest of finals. The grand final. <laughs> the <in> fact, <laughs> grand final. Um, now, George Ganinian, he actually went to the grand final, but had to buy a ticket. Oh, that is... He ended up sitting next to our former Collingwood captain Gordon Hocking for the match well, as well. Doesn't sound like he invited his wife there. <laughs> <laughs> or the naughty nurse. Well, the, uh, the nurse became his second wife and he's still with her until see, he there died. You go. Oh, yeah. see, that's oh, nice. that's it was a love yeah, affair. Was, yeah. She started off as a naughty nurse. Nice <laughs> <laughs> um, the This Collingwood team also contained three sets of brothers. We had the yes. uh, Lou and Ron Richards. Bob and Bill Rose and Bill, Pat and Mick Toomey. And it could have so easily not been because Bill Rose only got a call up uh, late because of, cause of a, a bit of an illness or an injury, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's uh, look, let's let's tell the story by interviewing uh, Louis the Lip. Yeah, let's speak to Lou. Let's uh, boot up that way back when machine. Lou, congratulations on the win. How are you feeling? Oh, how do you think I'm feeling? Bloody fantastic. <laughs> yeah, of course, Lou. Um, well, tell us about the year you've had so far. What a, what a great end to a 17-year drought. Oh, bloody oath. It wasn't a bad sort of a year. We were worried about Geelong again, but we knew we could have them at our best, and we managed to do it. And I know Fonz was upbeat about it all as well, wasn't he? Yeah, I agree. If it wasn't for some injuries, we would have really been tough to beat last year. And didn't we prove it that season? It showed we needed more depth, and bloody hell, did we go for it. So tell us about that. Well, we went and made sure we had backup across our lines in case anyone went down. And then looked at our weaknesses, especially around stoppages. We've all got plenty of stars, but you need someone who can fill in if they can't play. Of course, Lou, and improved a good move, obviously. So as well as depth, you seem to look for family. Uh, what is it? Um, three sets of brothers this year? <laughs> yeah, a bit of fun. But they wouldn't be there if they couldn't perform. My brother Ron's been tough, and the Roses and the Twoomies finished it off. They're all very different players, though. 
Now, one game I, we wanted to talk to you about uh, was late in the season, that match against uh, the undefeated Geelong. Lou, how did you feel ending their winning streak? Oh, bloody good. Not the way to say it. It was tough, but definitely gave us a heap of confidence. After an up-and-down season up to that point, we felt unbeatable. And you uh, continued that into the finals, but um, managed to suffer a few in injuries and even one to yourself, mate. Yeah, I managed to get it sorted without missing. But a slight fracture in me cheekbone was worrying, and then Dunstan missed a couple with a broken hand, and Tuck, the dill, got rubbed out for four weeks for striking. We had to cover them. We were lucky to be able to do it. Coming to today, it was clear that the two best teams had made it, Geelong being great all year and your boys coming in on a hot streak. What do you think defines your two teams? Well, really Geelong are pacey and slick and love having a bit of space to move around. When we're young and tough, and good at interrupting the flow of our opponents. Great quick description there, Lou. So leading up to today, uh, must have been nerve-wracking. Tell, uh, tell us about your morning. Before the game, Fonzie Kine and I told the players that no one was to go down. And if you're down and out, get up. Run past your mates and tell them to get on with the game. And that would give Geelong the score to chase at the turn for home. In the rooms, we figured out four or five goals lead at three-quarter time. That was the target, to make things fair. I greeted every player with a quiet word on arrival as well. I felt like it was a good thing to do. Uh, and so then you got yourself sorted and ready for the game. Tell us what it was like stepping onto the MCG today. Oh, there were 89,000 fans at the MCG for the grand final, and the atmosphere was electric. I ran down the race, and the wall of the sound hit us, the crowd just yelling. Then I braced against the streamers that they held us for us for a second, and then we were through. And the roar, the roar you heard all the way down the race doesn't count against the roar for us as we stepped onto the field. As usual, I walked over with Geelong skipper Fred Flanagan to toss the coin, to decide ends. Fred, always a gentleman, extended his hand, and he said to me, good luck, Lou. I wasn't having any of that. I said to him, don't wish me luck. You see that flagpole at the top of that stand? If you put your head down, I'll kick your flaming head right over it. <laughs> so you really came out hard then, Lou? Oh, of course we did, you dill. There's no way we we're going to win without putting a bit of fear into the opposition. So how was the feeling after a pretty heavy first half? As we trooped off at half-time, we all agreed we had, a we had the show. We were nine points up. We knew we had the wind in the third quarter. After that time in the third, when you looked like you had the run, it seemed as though the tides began to turn a bit. Uh, what did it feel like out in the field? Oh, in the last quarter, Geelong made a, had made a spirited revival and I thought they might just knock us off. Healy went down with a cramp and I ran over to him and told him to rest up in the forward pocket. I'd have decided to look after his man, Bert Warner. By this stage, Bobby Davis was going crazy. He'd kicked two goals and set up a couple of chances. He was running riot, this bloke, Warner. He was like a running gazelle. He kept getting the ball and taking off like a roadrunner. If this bastard will stop long enough, I'll knock him rotten, I remember saying to myself. Fortunately, Des recovered from his cramp and relieved the situation. In the dying moments of the game, which incidentally felt like an eternity. Then Ronnie somehow got the ball over to Bob Rose and kicked the clincher. The bell rang and the ground was invaded by thousands of Collingwood supporters. The players were swamped and I was carried shoulder high from the ground. I don't think I felt anything like that elation as I was hoisted up and carried from the MCG. How amazing, Lou. Uh, now, before we get too carried away with the win, we noticed you had a bit of trouble very late in the piece. What was going on there? Oh, well, late in the match, I cramped. The ground was rock hard and I ran out of steam. 
Down I went. A familiar voice yelled in my ear, Get up, you weak bastard. It was me brother, Ron. Oh, well, nothing like a bit of brotherly love, is there? So tell us, Lou, uh, after all that, who do you think was best on ground today? Look, it would have to be Des Healy. He was incredible out there today, but we were all bloody good. Oh, well, mate, thanks so much for the talk. We'll let you get back to it. Oh, thanks, all. Oh, wait a minute. Jock, jump up on the bench to speak to us. Here, I'll leave the phone off the hook so you can listen in. A bit of order. I just want to make an announcement. Listen. Order. Mr Jack Stewart, a great friend of Mr Wren, Mr Wren told him to come down and tell me personally to give the players £500. I've never been through a season in my life as I have this season, particularly today. It has been the most thrilling season that I have ever had with the Collingwood team. Although I'm not coach, I'm only helping out giving a bit of guidance. It's the most thrilling feeling I've had in all the premierships. I've never been so much worked up as I have this season to get into the four and for more reasons than one, to win the premiership for Fonsie Kine and all the players connected to the Collingwood Football Club and our worthy president and our committee. Um, okay, so some stats from that game. Um, the final score being Collingwood 11-11-77 to Geelong 8-17-65. Collingwood by 12 points. Goal scorers for Collingwood, Bachelor with four, Bob Rose three, Healy two, Richardson Toomey with one each. For Geelong, Davis, the Geelong Flyer with three, Rayson two, Hovey, McMaster and Trezise with one. Best for Collingwood were Mann, Healy, Ron Richards, Bob Rose, Fink and Merritt. So there you go. So close to three in a row. So close. For the kittens. Yeah. Um, Now... As a result of this, um, we just heard there what were probably among the last publicly w- said words by Jock McHale. Yes. Ah. Uh, because the next day he, he would suffer a heart attack after being worked up too much in the, the tense final minutes of that game, as he said his own words. Uh, so on October 4, eight days after the grand final, Jock McHale passed away. Oh. Collingwood at the time was on an end-of-season trip in Tasmania when the news came through. Uh, so they marked the game with a minute silence on the roadside, and then um, the president and captain all flew back for the, the state funeral that was held for him. Coincidentally, John Wren, who also has a lot to do with the Collingwood Football Club, uh, was a benefactor, he would also suffer a heart attack 36 hours after the game. Yeah. He became so ill he couldn't attend Jock's funeral, and he passed away on October 26th, a month after the game. Oh. So two Collingwood's the end, heavy hitters. It's- it's yeah. the official end to a Collingwood era. That is yeah. it, really. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So Jock McHale had a hand in all but one of their premierships so far, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah, because he was still um, on the chair of selectors. Yeah, wasn't absolutely, he? So, he was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. So sad. And look, if you want to know more about Jock McHale, have a listen to our previous episode. We've had we had that chat with oh, fantastic. Glenn McFarlane about him, which was was great. We were, went into a lot more detail. Um, so reserves grand finalist this year was Carlton. They defeated Essendon in the grand final. Under nineteens was Melbourne. They defeated Essendon in the grand final. Good signs for the future. <laughs> McClellan Trophy winners, though, were Essendon. Okay. Yeah. They had two teams in the grand final, and uh, their other team finished fourth. So Yeah. Doing okay. Yeah. 
Um, but this brings us to the end of our show. I've got some retirees for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Norm McDonald of Essendon, 128 games, two flags, three goals. Bob Syme of Essendon, 116 games, 59 goals, two flags. Pat Toomey goes out with a bang. Oh, really? Goes out with a flag, 55, 55 games, 49 goals. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Dynan, 149 games for North Melbourne, 83 goals. Jock McCorkle of North Melbourne, 167 games, five goals. So two, two very heavy hitters in North Melbourne, successful run in 49 and 50 there. We've got Keith Schaefer of North, oh, sorry, of South with 102 games, 22 goals, and Ted Jarrett of North Melbourne with 130 games. So North losing a lot of experience yeah. for those players. Um, but let's uh, let's wrap things up, shall we? For the Please. 1953 season. Premiers. Collingwood. Yep. Uh, Brownlow medalist, Moz. Bill Hutchison. Of? Essendon. Yeah, he was. <laughs> um, the Coleman medal, the leading goal kicker. It <laughs> was John Coleman. Yeah, yeah. With, with 97. Well, 96 for the season. Yeah, 97 the all over. Yeah. yeah. The Wooden Spooners. Anyone? Poor Hawthorne. Yeah. They're 10th. Double digits now for Hawthorne. They're, just, they're trailing only St. Kilda. Yeah, they, they, just, spoons, they, so. they snuck it off Melbourne there, so yeah. thank God for that. We'll take it. <laughs> uh, premiership tallies as of 1953. We've now got Collingwood with 12. Essendon, 10. Carlton, 8. Fitzroy, 8. Melbourne, 6. Geelong, 5. Richmond, 5. South Melbourne, 3. Do you know what I would love tally. to add to this tally? And, Moz, I'm giving you a bit of homework here. <laughs> All right, hit me. I want to know the tally of clubs with Brownlow medals. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll work on yeah, that. We're okay. going to add that to your section. Watch this space and also remind to... me on Monday. That's a job for me. <laughs> I will. Okay, great. Um, Telling the, us who truly is a great club. This is it. Right? The Coulthard mm. Shield for high score went to Geelong. Their score of 21-10, 136, the lowest in... The lowest since 24, yeah. didn't they say? Yeah. yeah. Kaz, the McCracken name award. I know everyone's been waiting yeah, for this. I certainly have. So, we've got Billy Gunn, the previous read, uh, winner. He he could retain. We've I'm going to need some help with this one. John McCashney, Wally Nash, Peter Marquis, Kevin Kopok, Bill Linger, Graham Minahan, John Svensson, Arnie Bench, Otto Grobecker, Reg Renwick, Graham Spooner, Charlie Warnhope, Dick Gill, Peter Bevilacqua, Ian Monks, Lionel Ollington, or Ivan Baumgartner. Whoa. First of all, congratulations to all those. And let's give it to the one we made fun of the most, which was the German at the end of the list here. Ivan Baumgartner. Yes, love yes. it. Yes. That was easy, didn't it? Yeah, good decision yeah, no, you can. Yeah, just, yeah, just make the decision quickly and get it done. I love your style. So that brings us to another. The end of another week already. <laughs> <laughs> More quick decisions with Kaz. <laughs> Live from the kick cave. Quick decisions with Kaz. That's just another podcast. Just a call up. What should I do? Just do it. Kaz, hot or cold? <laughs> Time ticks away. <laughs> <laughs> then you edit it so it sounds like you're really oh, quick. Exactly. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's cheating, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So thank you. Thank you for tuning in. Yes. Thank so uh, we've got. I think we've got one more episode. One more season. We're going to focus on this yes. year before we've we have more our more episodes, but one more season. One more season. Then mm-hmm. we'll have our big end of the year uh, best of that we right. like to do. We we'll make yes. our best team, which you know, is a great time. Oh yeah. yeah. It's one of the funnest times. It it's is. It's our, it's, our, it's our Christmas. Yeah. It yeah. is. <laughs> um, so. Yeah. Ooh. No, we expect people to check out the list as well. Make sure they pick over it and they yeah. agree or not. Yeah, yeah get angry, as angry as they do about the All-Australian team. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what we like. Um, yeah, so we are now entering an off-season period in you know the AFL season. Yeah. So what better time to listen to our podcast exactly. than we really the olden days. 
Relive the great olden times. What a great year this was. I mean, look at the debutants. Tom yeah. Hafey. Barassi. Yeah. Barassi. Hey, we're, so we're, so. we're two episodes from Bulldog. Oh, him. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, the great man. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we'll go out with Big Red's Roundup. We will, yes. Uh, so have a listen to that. And until we see you again in 54, uh, yeah, as we've said, <laughs> let uh, everyone know that you're listening there's plenty of episodes out there. How many yeah, have we got uh, in the bank now? 72. See, you've got oh, yeah. hours of hours. listening. There's your summer sorted. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You could travel. You could do that entire plane trip that took that guy eight months. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Yep. Um, Think of what you'll be able to say next time. If you go to the Northern Florida. Territory as well. Take yes, make sure you listen. listen. I think we're still waiting for a Colombian download as well. We need some Colombians yeah. and some more sneaky Ruskies as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and Russia, Russia likes us. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, so until 54, hooroo. Big Red's local footy round or your state and suburban football action, sinking our teeth into grassroots football. G'day, Kick Team, and welcome to the roundup for the 1953 season of football from around this great country. First, we take a look at the Sandville, where in the 74th season of the competition, we have a West Torrens side winning their fourth club premiership in a win over Port Adelaide. 43,000 fans attended to see the final scores in the close encounter being 9-13-67 to 8-12-60. Port had a six-point lead at the final change, but after a scoreless final quarter, slipped away to their 26th grand final loss. The Ken Farm reward for the Sandville leading goalkeeper was won by Max Mayo from Norwood with 78 goals for the season. The McGarry medal for the 1953 season was won by Jim Dean from South Adelaide. Dean was a half-forward who was runner-up in the McGarry medal on three separate occasions before his first win in 1953. Dean will go on to become a dual winner of this prestigious award, meaning that he has finished in the top two of the McGarry Medal in five separate seasons. Absolutely extraordinary effort. Over the waffle, where they head into the 69th season of competition, we have South Fremantle smashing all comers throughout the season to secure their seventh club premiership. The win is the club's fifth premiership over the last nine seasons in a run that has also included two runners-ups during that same period. So seven grand final appearances in total over those last nine seasons. This year's grand final was played against second-place finisher West Perth in front of 34,000 fans who witnessed a game that was somewhat over by half-time. Excuse me, it was somewhat even at half-time, but during the second half, Fremantle kicked 10 goals to streak away to a 59-point victory, and in that second half that was a little bit one-sided, we have final scores finishing the game at 18-12-120 to 8-13-61. Our leading waffle goal kicker for the 1953 season was Bernie Naylor from South Fremantle with a record-making 167 goals for the season, which I dare say will never be broken. It was a match against Subiaco in 1953 where Naylor kicked an unbelievable 23 goals, and he kicked 12 of those goals in one quarter. He kicked a record 156 goals in the qualifying matches that season, and by the end of the finals, he had added 11 more to that tally. The Sandover medal was won in the 1953 season by Merv McIntosh from Perth for the second time. He received his first Sandover medal back in the 1948 season. McIntosh was a clever tap ruckman who this season also won his second Simpson medal, given to the best player at the Interstate Carnival for his starring role for Western Australia and also received All-Australian selection in this season. Next season, Merv McIntosh will do something that only four other Waffle Champions have done before him, and keep your ears out for that one. Over to the VFA, and in the 76th, 72nd rather, excuse me, the 72nd season of competition, the Premiership was won 
by competition powerhouse Port Melbourne by a massive 60 points over close town rival Yarraville. Port Melbourne's 14 goals second half had the Yarraville side chasing the pigskin around looking for trying to get their hands on it for those final 40 minutes of the game. The scores were Port's 21-15-141 to Yarraville's 12-9-81. The win was Port's seventh premiership overall and the first after three consecutive grand final losses in recent seasons. But sadly for them, they will go on to break this record. Yuck. A boisterous crowd of 40,000 fans made it to the clash that was advertised to be quite a tough and rough match. The main reason was this for this was that Don Mopsy Fraser had just come across from Richmond and joined Port in 1953. Mopsy was a rugged and aggressive forward and in his time at Richmond had missed 16 matches through suspension. Mopsy kept his head though in this game and somewhat uh, led the way for his Port side, kicking a game-high seven goals. Although this was Mopsy's first season in the VFA, he went on. He went without a suspension in his first season in the VFA, um, but he certainly makes up for it with an additional 30 weeks worth of suspensions while playing for either Port Melbourne or later uh, in his career, Paran. So a career total of 46 weeks on the sidelines through suspension, nearly two and a half seasons missed through suspension. Crazy. In other news... The Port Melbourne Thirds have lost their first match since 1946, ending a 127-game winning streak. The team lost its first match in its inaugural season in 1946 before embarking on a record-breaking winning streak, which incorporated seven consecutive premierships for that Port Melbourne Thirds side. So from 1946 round two to 1953, they have gone undefeated. Truly extraordinary. The association's leading goal kicker was won by Johnny Walker from Williamstown with 99 goals for the season. The 1953 JJ Liston medal for the association's best player was won by Ted Henrys from Preston. Henrys was a strong and reliable fullback for both Brunswick and then later in his career, Preston. Over to the Federal League, where Dandenong have defeated Caulfield by 26 points in their very first season of season in existence. And finally, we have City Football Club going back-to-back down in Tassie. And with that, we wrap up the roundup for the 1953 season of football from around the grounds. Until next time, kick straight. To find out more about the Kick to Kick team and the sources we use, visit our website, www.kicktokickpodcast.com. You can contact us via email at kicktokickpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Instagram under at kicktokickpod. Thanks so much for listening.